Hello, hello. Welcome to How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. I'm Tunde. Welcome to our Best Bits of the Year show. It's that time of year and it's also going to be the final show of the year. So we thought we would compile some of the best bits over the last 12 months. Over the next 20 or 30 minutes or so, you'll hear clips from Sky Sports presenter Carl Walker, cosmetic doctor to the stars, Dr. Esho, CEO of BYP Network, Kike Oniwinde Oguru, and Rugby World Cup winner Maggie Ofonzi, just to name a few. First up is Michael Akadiri. Now, we had on plenty of people who are good multitaskers and people who can moonlight doing their main job during the day while doing one or two other side hustles in the evening or weekends. But I don't think we've had on anybody else on who has straddled two professions which are so completely different. So back in March, Michael, who is both a doctor and a comedian, came on the podcast and talked about whether a comedian can be funny and be good looking at the same time. There was a guy that taught the course and he he came up with a, an interesting kind of concept. He said and I don't know if you would agree with this, but he basically said that successful comics can never be too good looking because as an audience, and I I don't know if this relates to women, I think he was mainly referring to guys at the time, but he said that as an audience member, you need to be able to relate to the comic and, you know, the comic needs to have that kind of everyman type of uh, vibe about him. So what what do you think about that? Do you think that's still the case now or... I'm, I'm just thinking of good-looking comics. And I, I mean, you know, just like um, objectively, I, I can think of Russell Brand, I guess, back in the day, he was a pretty good-looking guy. Richard Blackwood, I guess, is a pretty good-looking guy. But I can't think of any more than that. I mean, you're, you're a good-looking guy as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I, was, I was about to say yeah. to them, I was waiting for that comment, by the way. I was like, he's meeting around the bush and let, he needs to go into the bush. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, what, what do you think about that notion? Is it, is it, you know, what's your view on that? Yeah, now, now I know why I've not been successful. It makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> In November, another funny man, Emmanuel Osukwo, who is a financial advisor and TV personality, came on. And in this clip, he talks about how he has taken his role as role model very seriously. You know, representation matters. And so for me, you know, there are people now who have become financial influencers or financial advisors and have been able to quit their job and do this stuff full-time on social media and support themselves and their family all because they saw me doing it and there was something that they, they aspired to do. And that's, that's so, that, that to me is just as important as me doing well, is the fact that I can inspire other people to do well. You know, I've had a young person come to me and be like, um, they like science, and so they were like, I want to become an expert like you. And when, they, when he told his friends... His friends kind of laughed at him, like, what do you want to become an expert for, like, of all the jobs you want to do? And then when he was like, oh, but E-Man's an expert, they were like, oh, yeah, E-Man's cool. We love what E-Man does. Like, so if that's what you want to do, then, yeah, that's cool. We support that. And it's like, sometimes you need to have those role models that people can, that are bought into that, 
to encourage you and say, look, let me step out of this, this comfort zone. Let me step out of having to be a rapper or um, a, a footballer. Like there are so many other prof- professions for us, but who do we see in the spaces to make us feel comfortable to walk into these spaces? So I'm glad I can be a part of that for a lot of people. Role models is something that crops up time and time again with different guests throughout the year. And in April, we had on cosmetic doctor, Dr. Eshop. As well as talking about being a role model, he talked about the early days of setting up his own clinic above a shop in Newcastle. At the time, I was dating a girl from Newcastle um, and I've been dating her for about two years, two years, three years. So it was like, I'm going to apply to London, she's going to come to London, or I'm going to apply to Newcastle. And it just turned out that like I got Newcastle. So that made sense there. Um, so that's how I ended up in Newcastle. And then during my rotation there, you know, um, as I was starting my non-surgical bits, I started to build up a small but low following. Um, and I was used in social media then. Uh, you know, a lot of people weren't really using that to post their results then, but I was posting my before and afters all the time and gaining a lot of traction from doing that. And it it kind of poured gasoline on the fire one day when one celebrity saw her friends and before and after my page called me up, said, look, can I come and see you? I hadn't seen anyone famous at that point. So I was quite nervous. And because I, I remember, you know, all I had at that time was this small space above a hairdresser's where I had a fold out bed from Amazon, which I bought for like 20 quid, you know. So I was like, this celebrity is coming and I've just got this space above there. So I was like, right, I need to make it look like something. So I've got my girlfriend at the time to pretend to be my receptionist, you know, like I bought all these Fiji water. I remember like just doing all this stuff to try and make it look a bit extra. Um, she came she didn't really care about all that she was lovely had a treatment and then I went to sleep and I woke up in the morning and I thought something very bad had happened because I had so many emails and my insta was popping off I thought oh god what's happened but it just turned out she had posted saying like oh my god love my lips thanks to Dr. Esho and literally Daily Mail from the Sun to everybody were like oh you know you know who are you what did you do everything and yeah from there there was a kind of almost snowball effect because then I moved into this kind of celebrity black book where everybody was passing my name around. So, you know, this is the guy to go to. Um, and, and that helped build my practice together with social media. A great story of almost faking it till you make it there from, from Dr. Esho there. In May, it was a pleasure to have on CEO of BYP Network, Kike Onawinde Oguru. And because she is right in the hub of young people and what they get up to and their desires and wants and stuff like that she's probably more than most people knows a lot about you know how to get the community moving in the right direction and she came up with a really powerful answer on what's preventing the black community in achieving success on a more consistent basis I'd say I can answer this question from Kike today, like not Kike back then, like Kike today, six years into her business, into, you know, just understanding the community more, DEI and just everything that I've seen. And I do believe it does still stem from what we know in terms of our community being very divided and divided in all sense. So 
whether it's just in terms of the family, like we said, a lot of us are from single parent households. So you've got that parent who's having to work a lot and that's their focus, right? Just providing food on the table. So maybe in terms of the individual, maybe they're not, um, you know, they're not guided the way they need to be in terms of careers because they don't know. You don't know what you don't know. There's that lack of role model visibility. So maybe if you're hanging out in the streets or if you're hanging out with the wrong crowds, you know, that's how you're being brought up kind of by those around you versus maybe kind of the actual family home environment. That we mentioned the crabs in the barrel situation. I do believe that is a problem where we just think that there's only space for one of us, not all of us. So there isn't people helping each other, wanting to help each other, wanting to, you know, just promote one another. It's kind of a, you know, I've made it look at me like clout kind of chasing um, and making sure that, you know, I'm doing well, maybe not those around me. Look at how many followers I have when it's not even about followers. There's people who have like one follower and they're, they're, they're billionaires, right? Like there's just this lack of community cohesion. There's also a lack of like um, going for it, like in terms of like BYP, we put out so much opportunities. I remember once we put out this really incredible careers fair, like loads of incredible companies, really ready to like hire black talent. We put it out there. The majority of people that actually registered for that event were Asians. Like it was wild. We're like, what? Like, hold on. This literally says black professionals, black community. And it was mainly Asians that, that had applied for that. So it was almost like they see an opportunity and they go for it. Whereas I'm not saying we definitely do, right? Like I'm one of those people, but not all of us or not all of us understand that we have to like invest in ourselves, invest in our professional development and our careers. And then also, you know, I'm talking about us as a, as a community. Outside of that, obviously, we know there are barriers. So I know that Asians, for example, talk about the good Im- immigrant. So they see themselves like the good immigrants. They're the ones that kind of come, they're palatable. You know, they kind of do what they're told. They get their head down. They invest together as a community. Like a, a group of them will buy houses together and then they'll live there. And then they'll, you know, they'll do that multiple times. They're kind of grown up in a, in a, in a very kind of collaborative family environment. They see the role models around them. So it's just, it's, it's, it's completely different. Like, yeah, we are both communities of color, but actually, uh, I say our actual structural environment is very different. And then again, obviously we did go through slavery. You know, we do go through more barriers in the sense of, like I said, some people see them as the good immigrants versus black community where it's just negative stereotypes all the time on us. So we've got a double-edged sword. We've got our own problems that we have to sort out as a community. So even the divide between black men and women, all this kind of incel behavior that's going on, you know, just just that in itself is is gross. Colorism, featurism, that's its own thing. You know, the role that music plays in terms of influencing us as well. And then obviously the other barriers in terms of the systems against us also working to break us down, working to break the black family and break the black home. So do you agree with what Kike said on some of the actions that we need to take as a, as a community? If so, and if you're on Spotify, you can leave your feedback directly on the app now. So if you just jump into Spotify, go into the podcast show and scroll down and there's, there's an opportunity for you to, to leave your, your feedback there. If you're not on that, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or maybe on uh, YouTube or whatnot, then please go to social media, leave us a comment using hashtag how I crushed it. And we'll, we'll pick up your comments there. A lot of the guests we've spoken to have become leaders in their chosen field, but of course, no one starts out being a leader. It's a journey. And back in May, Keisha Thompson, the artistic director of Contact Theatre in, in Manchester, came on and talked about the challenge of taking up a leadership position 
in the arts? I went in expecting to be slapped in the face, expecting not to know what it would involve, expecting it to be demanding. And yeah, it has been all of those things. I guess I was already aware of the sector and how difficult things would be. And it's like, you know, we're still post-pandemic, post-Brexit. It's not easy out there. It's hard to tour work. Funding's more competitive. So I knew what I was stepping into. But yeah, I suppose you still got to just check in with your emotions, check in with the pace that you want to go at, check in with your team, make sure that they're feeling supported and just keep recalibrating, keep being responsive and not get bogged down. So I've kind of gone in with a vision and with clarity, but from the beginning I've said, I'm here to share this and shape this with you. So one of the first things I did was I had a one-to-one with every single member of staff and there was 40 members of staff. So that took a lot of time, Um, but it was important. I was just like, you know, I can't just come in and bulldoze. That's just not my vibe. That's not the way. And that's not the way to work with people. So I need to understand what's going on here, what the context is, what everyone's experienced. If we understand things in the same way, when I say young person and you say young person, do we mean the same thing? And one of the questions that I asked, and so many people were surprised by this, I was like, what do you expect from me as as the AD? What is it that you're expecting me to do? I should be aware of that. And the answers were so varied. One that was really lovely that a few people said was, I expect you to be a poet. I'm still expecting you to to be your artistic self. So I was like, okay, cool. Thank you for giving me that permission. Um, And I was like, what does that mean? What does that look like? So I've been just doing little things like every week I do a tanker on a Thursday. And it might be promoting a show or it might be just talking about something that's happening at contact. But it's a very short form. It's a five line poem. But again, it's just a little thing. It's a fun little thing for me to do. Keeps me creative. I get little hits from it. People are like, oh, yeah, a little tanker or whatever. So, And it's just stuff like that where it's like, what does it mean when I'm in this space? And I'm just getting to explore that and embrace embrace that whilst also doing all the really serious stuff that is not boring. You know, so many people go, oh, how are you dealing with the boring stuff? And I'm like, it's not boring. That stuff excites me as well. Like, that's why I'm in this role. I don't need to diminish that side. I don't need to... There's this kind of fetishization, I suppose, of being an AD that you're just kind of running around, just having all these wacky ideas and everyone's just kind of running behind you trying to make it work. And you're like, no. I can be extremely serious and business-minded whilst also rolling around and being covered in glitter. (laughs) (laughs) Great insight there into leading an arts organisation. You know, as she said, it's not all about coming up with creative ideas. You know, a lot of it is about budgeting and finance and management of people exactly the kind of stuff that you would expect to do in the business world. In July, Sky Sports presenter Carl Walker came on and talked about getting his big break in sports journalism, interviewing the one and only Pep Guardiola. So I get a call after doing some presenting stuff and I'd been working, um, and I'm a massive Manchester City fan, but I've been working within football and especially on YouTube for a little bit of time and I've been getting in touch with Manchester City. If there's any opportunities, any opportunities, please let me know, let me know. And I got a phone call uh, from the head of City TV, Michael Russell, 
And he said to me, Kyle, we've got this opportunity. Can you come and do it? And I was running some workshops and I was working at the time. And I said, Michael, I'm sorry, like, I can't do this. I've got work. I've got to go and honor and do this work because I'm being paid for it. You're offering me an opportunity that I'm not being paid for. I can't do it. He said, Kyle, come and do this. I said, Michael, I'm not being funny. I know I've that pursued you. I've emailed you so many times, but I can't get out of this. It's too short notice. He said, Kyle, <laughs> get out of it. <laughs> so I did. I spoke to the organization and I agreed to um, half a day. And I went to the CFA, the City Football Academy, as a Man City fan, not really knowing what to expect. Being in this room with loads of different people before it, still didn't have a clue. Just got told, well, you're going on Chappie's taxi. Now, that was something that I'd seen on YouTube. Um, Chappie was the kit man at Manchester City, uh, ex-professional footballer, worked there for years. And he would basically pick the players up and talk to them in a cab. So I thought that we were doing that. There was different fans that were going to be involved. And then we got taken to the Northern Quarter and I had a a cameraman who was with me. I didn't really expect much. I didn't know what all this fuss was about. And the taxi pulls up for me to get in. Chappie's driving. And they said, as soon as you get in the taxi, watch your head. I'm quite tall. On the the GoPros, the cameras that are above, and put your seatbelt on. You've got to do those two things perfect get in watch my head on the the cameras put the seatbelt on turn to my right oh wow Pep Guardiola sat there the Manchester City manager who was being announced that day was currently sat in a taxi with me and I didn't quite know what to expect really (laughs) and I just chatted to him I remember him saying hello Kyle I was blown away how does Pep Guardiola know my name what And I just proceeded to have a 10, 15 minute conversation as we drove around Manchester. In October, we had on property expert and TV personality, Tayo Oguntanade. Another common theme that has come up multiple times is the ups and downs and everyday challenges that everyone experiences, whether you are successful or not. And in this funny clip, Tayo explains how, when this happens, you just need to push through even if you're not in your best moment very early stages of bricks with tips i went over to darlington i was going to buy an investment property documented the whole thing right when i was up there when i came back down and started editing the video editing used to take me ages in the early days i realized that when i was filming in king's cross station i had a booger in my nose very embarrassing (laughs) this is the early stages of bricks with tips right and okay i made the decision to post it anyway because uh, it's not a beauty channel. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to say <laughs> it's not a beauty channel. And the content I was talking about at the time was very valuable and it benefited a lot of people. Um, I said that, that you know what, this decision is gonna is gonna help with how we think about our content going forward, basically. <laughs> Hilarious. I mean, I haven't been brave enough yet to to seek out the video that features Tayo doing what he was talking about, but you know, props to him for just getting through with it and getting on with it. Props to him. Back in February, we had on ex-journalist and media guru Matilda Aguirre-Cooper, and she talked about how challenging it was to interview the one and only Stevie Wonder during her lunch break. It was a bit unconventional, simply for the fact that there was no room nor chair. 
his PR basically at the 11th hour kind of called me up to say, look, do you want to chat to Stevie? Um, great PR at the time. I don't know if he's still at Ireland. Any case, he called me up and said, hey, are you around? Would you like to interview Stevie? Because I think maybe a couple weeks prior, I knew that the album was dropping. I kind of said, Shane, look, if there's any opportunity to hook a sister up, because I was writing for Blues and Soul. And I said to Bob, who's the editor at Blues and Soul, look, if Stevie comes, can I do Stevie? He's like, yeah, all good. So I'm hoping that any minute now I'll get an opportunity to interview him and the opportunity comes. And Shane says, look, can you get down to, um, I think it was uh, the hotel Hyde Park. Um, like, can you get down here in like 15 minutes? And I was like, uh, yeah. Bearing in mind, I was at work. So <laughs> I was like, um, can I just go on my lunch break? Yeah, yeah, cool, cool, cool. And I was like a runner at the time, so nobody was too fast. So here's me hoping that I can interview Stevie Wonder in my lunch break. But being someone who was always ready, I had like my tape recorder on me. You know, I was, I was prepared. So I jumped in a cab, got down to this hotel, and Simon Hattonstone, who's like a big journal at The Guardian, he was finishing up his interview with Stevie and kind of saying bye and taking too many photos and <laughs> doing all the things. And I remember just kind of waiting, you know, for my opportunity to kind of chat to him. And then so his PR comes, oh, it was the Lanesboro Hotel, Lanesboro, because I was like, I need to remember the name. Yeah, the Lanesboro. And so his PR comes up to me and says, sorry, we've actually run out of time. So unfortunately you won't be able to interview him. And I'm like, no, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, I can't remember exactly, but I just remember thinking there must be a way surely. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and it was like, nah, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. It's like, you got to be kidding me. Come on. Cause I mean, Simon was taking his sweet time, taking all those photos. So I very much blame him to this day. But um, <laughs> the PR was like, but you can meet him. You know, you can say hello to him. I was like, I guess better than nothing. So she kind of pulls me over to Stevie, who's now available and free. And she introduces me and says, hi, this is Matilda from Blues and Soul. I was like, yeah, lovely to meet you. I was meant to interview you now, but unfortunately <laughs> I can't. And he's like, oh, well, you know, can she interview me in the cab? You know, because we're on our way to the Parkinson's show. And I'm like, yeah, can I? <laughs> and, you know, the pre like, oh, sure, whatever you want, Mr. Wonder, you know. And so I interviewed him in the back of a cab on the way to the Parkinson show, which is at ITV, which is from the Lanesboro, it's probably 15, 20 minutes. So, which is perfect, which is fine. So yeah, that was interesting because I'm sat back, you know, in the back of this car with him, just chatting to him and he's just there. <laughs> Obviously you can't see me, but you know, there wasn't like, I suppose the typical nerves you would have when interviewing celebs, but he was great and very perceptive. He could hear the mild Nigerian accent in my tone, which is incredible. Um. I don't have a Nigerian accent, but he could tell that's what I'm having. <laughs> Cause he's that sensitive to dialects and tones. And so, yeah, it was incredible. Famous people crop up several times with many of the, the guests that have come onto the podcast. And in this clip, Stephanie Boyce, former president of the law society, talked about how she got an opportunity to share a stage with Hillary Clinton. I didn't believe that the Law Society was visible enough putting itself out there on the press. 
talking about rights and the law and so forth. And so when I became president, I was determined to change that. But lots of it also, Tunde, was people coming to us and wanting to interview me. You know, Channel 4, all of those, Nagamanchetti, Radio 5, you know, and the, and the people who brought Hillary Clinton to London came to me and I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a scam. <laughs> After about four meetings, I said, look, am I actually going to meet Hillary Clinton? And they said, Stephanie, you're going to share a stage with Hillary Clinton. And I was just so, I was, you know, to this day, I mean, how awesome. And for anyone wondering about imposter syndrome, yes, it did come when I shared that stage with Hillary Clinton, but very quickly it went. People in the black community are not a monolith. We all know this. And it was great having Rugby World Cup winner Maggie Alfonsi on in October. And here she talks about how difficult it was to come out, particularly in a black African family. So I very much came from an upbringing where Christian family very much went to church regularly, Nigerian background as well. So my mother didn't necessarily sort of understand my sexuality and the path that I was going down, really. And um, it's really interesting. It's just funny, the, the term coming out is something I tend to avoid, actually, because I didn't necessarily come out. I just, I had always been, this is, you know, I was born this way and this is how I had been. And and, and actually, the, the only challenge was is just trying to, when do I let my mum know? <laughs> you know, this is who I am. And, and so I told her in my... Um, after I think I was still at university at the time, so I had told I told her basically once I had come out of university and was obviously progressing my professional career, and um, it was a challenge. I can't lie to you; it was a challenge, and and I, I completely understand from my mum's perspective that was really hard because she didn't. I think she was more upset with the fact that I hadn't told her sooner. That was more the the, the challenge, not necessarily the fact that I was this way. And what I'm, what you know, we went through a challenging time. We had some ups and some downs. But what's great now, she knows this is who I am. She loves who I am, and she loves my wife. You know, that, and that's brilliant. Like, and we have two beautiful kids, and and that's that's the kind of priority, and that's the main thing. So I think that's the hardest thing for many people who go on that journey. It's actually people are always worrying about will the people around me accept me, and thankfully they did and they do and if they don't then they don't become part of my life anymore you know the reality is it's and I, I guess that's that was the thing back then it's very much um I can't change who I am I am who I am and how I've been born so but that this is why I'm very much a I guess I'm a champion for diversity and inclusion you know we're, we're all different types of people different backgrounds different race different sexualities disabilities and faith and actually how do we ensure that people can bring their best selves to to work or the environment that they're in and thankfully for me, I've been. I can. I feel like I can live the life that I, I want to live, where some people in certain parts of the world can't. So I guess I'm. I guess I'm very grateful. I'm always grateful, and as long as my kids are also able to see that people can be different types of people, and and it's okay. You know, that's that's always a big thing for me. Great to have Maggie on, particularly as at the time of recording, she was busy being a pundit on the men's rugby World Cup, which uh, South Africa went on to win. So many thanks to to Maggie. Maggie is a MBE recipient and we've uh, in fact had on two MBEs on the podcast, I think. And the next guest talks about what it's really like to actually win or receive an MBE. For people that know about it, one, one, it's one of those 
one of those awards that you have nothing to do with. So, you know, it's a, it's a long process. You don't actually submit anything. Somebody has to do it in secret on your behalf. Um, and I only know that because I've had to write letters of recommendation for other people that have been put forward for awards. So I know it's not something I had any idea about. And the irony of it is, is that, and, and I respect the fact people will have different opinions on it. My opinion was that I've not put myself forward for it, but it's more about what the award's for and what it stood for, for me, in terms of the work that had been done. And people often don't, they obviously see what it is an MBE and they think empire and all that, and I get that. And I, and I totally respect people's views of not taking the award on that basis. But the, the award was being given where people have taken the time to nominate you for something you've done for your community. And for me, you know, legacy is quite important in terms of, what you're recognized for. It's not, I don't really care about, you know, the roles I've had or what I've done in terms of things I've worked on. But, you know, what is important is, you know, what, you know, what impact did I have um, when I was on this earth? So I think for me, it was when it came through, I had no idea. It was funny, actually, we'd moved house. So I was actually uh, moved house, but luckily had redirection on my post. And when it came through to the new house, I, I actually said at the time, this is, can't be for me. It must be for my wife, who, who's, who's a barrister. And I thought it looked official. It didn't look like it was anything for me. But then I kind of peeled back the envelope where the redirection was over who it was, was addressed to, and it was to me, and I had no idea. I was thinking, cabinet office, what, what have I done? Oh, you know, you're thinking, have I got a speeding fine? Have I done something wrong? <laughs> so it was that bit of curiosity at first, and then, um, then I opened it, and then it kind of, Gives you, it's kind of like kind of weird language they use the way in the which they're telling you you're going to be awarded. And I think Theresa May was prime minister at the time. So it was like, you know, Theresa May wants to put you forward for this and it goes off somewhere else. And then you have to say yes or no. And um, yeah, and then you're sworn to secrecy, really. So it was kind of, uh. a, so I think I got told maybe beginning of November. Um, and then you kind of like sworn to secrecy until the end of December, really. So yeah, it was, an, it was, it was, um, yeah, it was a, a really pleasant surprise. And in a way, I think it was the end of an era because I knew I was finishing this nearly 19 years at Cisco. I'd done a lot while I was there and I you know, did a lot of the work while I was in the company as well, off, you know, off my own back with things I was passionate about with others. And, uh, you know, it felt like a nice bit of closure for a period in my life that, you know, I'd done a lot. So I, you know, I was quite comfortable with it. But, you know, equally in my, in my own friendship groups, you know, I've got friends who were like, I can't believe you took it. And, um, you know, and I get that. But for me, it was, look, you know, it was for what I did. And, you know, very specific. And I always say to people, as much as you may say empire and that, it's what you stu- what what it was for. And as I said, for, my, for me, it was representing our people in terms of the work we do to make sure that we get more people like you and I into science and technology. So, you know, if that's what's left, there's a stamp to say that's what it was for, then I'm happy with that. That was Tunji Akintoku, Marketing Director at LinkedIn. Tunji came on in June and thank you to him. We've had some funny moments with a lot of our guests. And on the next clip is Michael Akadiri again, giving us a fascinating insight on the craft of making people laugh. 
that's all comedy really is. You you have a funny idea, you have a funny story, you have a funny concept, and you're like, I think this is funny. Let's see if other people think this is funny. Then you go out on stage, you try your material, and then the audience tells you whether they agree with you or not. You don't have to ask them. They tell you whether they laugh or not. And that's all comedy is. And you're always working to get the most amount of laughs in a short space of time. So my aim is always to be very efficient with my words. A lot of comedy, I I spend, I've got a tab open on my laptop with a thesaurus because a lot of comedy is just using different words and with a different cadence, with a different speed to try and elicit a laugh. And once I sort of figure that out, then you try to figure out how to be, what type of comic do you want to be? What do you want to talk about? What interests you? And I think any comedian needs to talk about what interests them because and all just can tell from a mile of if you're talking about a topic that doesn't, that bores you. So you need to talk about something that interests you, that you can make funny, and hopefully you give an insight into your life because that makes it a bit more personal and relatable for the audience. And then if you can have a political point or a point or give someone another perspective that is not considered, then even better. And I think it leaves people thinking, I think a comic has done a good job if they leave you laughing and thinking and pondering whether they've got the right perspective on things. Success is never guaranteed. And Claudine Adeyemi, CEO of tech company Early Bird, speaks about how her life could have very easily gone down a completely different path. Leaving home um, was was tough. Um, and there were distractions everywhere. Where I am now, I it could just as easily, either through a poor decision or frankly luck, ended up in a very com- different uh, situation than I'm in now, whether that's dead, whether that's in prison or just kind of not nowhere near as successful as I am now. I can't remember like a particular moment per se, um, but there were definitely moments um, overall whereby, you know, you've got, it's a hostel, right? So, and it's a girls hostel. So you've got drug dealers hanging around trying to rope you into what they're doing Um You've got girls hanging around who are um, doing all sorts of drugs in terms of selling, but also um, taking, falling pregnant um, early on, um, having parties very regularly um, during the week. All of those types of things where at any point I could have said, yes, or I'm going to take the easy way out or I'm going to have fun. I'm going to live my life now and not do the hard thing, which was staying focused, studying, revising preparing for exams, all of that kind of stuff. And any single one of those decisions could have obviously led down a different route for me. It just goes to show that no matter what your situation, that doesn't mean that your life is set. You know, she proves that there is potential to break that and get on a different path. You just need to have the right mindset and work hard. Beatrice Nicholas, a classical pianist, and she came on the podcast in March, and we explored what it takes to get to the top of your profession, even at a relatively young age. And on this clip, she speaks about the lengths she went to just to prepare for an audition. I was taking private lessons with one of the professors there so that I could prepare really well for the audition. Whilst not living in Germany, whilst, whilst living in Sussex, I'd fly over to Berlin once every two weeks. For one day, you know, getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning to get to Stansted Airport, getting back at midnight for this lesson, 
um, often it was in the winter and Berlin in the winter is freezing. <laughs> but you're kind of hanging out at a cafe, staying warm before you go to your lesson because you got there, you know, two hours early or whatever. And working at the same time to support myself to do this. And so you're investing a lot in an outcome that you don't have full control over. And that's pressure on me from me. And on one of the most recent episodes in November, venture capitalist and investor Edwin Appiah described how he found the most unlikeliest role model in a character from the 1990s hit comedy Desmond's. I vividly remember watching the long-standing show that was on Channel 4 at the time called Desmond's. Ah, yeah, yeah. And... And, and watching that and watching uh, Michael, I think, who was the son, who was a, he was either a businessman or a banker. And he, you know, every day he would wear a suit and he would have a briefcase and just watching him and, and having that as a role model and something to look at and to look to uh, really did inspire me. Um, and I think off the back of, you know, watching the Desmonds and, um, you know, receiving multiple rejections, trying to break into the physiotherapy space and, you know, following reading The Rich Dad Poor Dad, I thought, you know, why not try and see if there's another area that I could focus my time and energy in. So I started to, to look at opportunities in financial services, um, started speaking to a couple of recruiters and, you know, they thought, because of my personable skills um, and the fact that, you know, I was, um, I had a, a keen interest in, in finance, a keen interest in um, financial services that they thought maybe getting into, into banking, you know, in the administrative roles or in a junior role could be a good step. Recording a podcast has been a real journey and half the battle is just ensuring that there are no problems with the technology or, you know, the microphone and stuff like that. Sometimes things don't always go to plan and sometimes, you know, it's even it's even a challenge just to speak and to make sense. So we'll leave you with a bit of a blooper and thank you for your support. Thank you for listening in 2023 and wish you all a great 2024 and catch you on the next show. The, the, the rugby union, uh, yeah, the rugby union uh, union uh, council. You're getting uh, it. It's good. Rugby football union. Yeah, it always, rugby, that's football. just the F. <laughs> <laughs>